might have gone down as just another case of domestic violence. Just another case of a husband accused of killing his wife. No. On second thought, it had too many salacious elements. It was inevitable that it would catch the attention of the public and some television producer. A semi-famous author with a bit of a checkered past. A large insurance policy. Large debt. A decorated war hero with a penchant for young men. A body at the foot of the stairs. A star prosecution witness prone to exaggeration. A filmmaker from France. And an owl. Add all these things together and you have the plot of The Staircase, a Netflix film that purports to tell the story of the murder of Kathleen Peterson. So mix yourself a Sazerac and listen to our tale of The Owl and The Staircase. Mike Peterson was born in Nashville, Tennessee, and graduated from Duke University. After graduation, he took a job with the Defense Department and later joined the Marines. He claimed to have served in Vietnam and won a Silver Star and a Bronze Star, as well as two Purple Hearts. He was said he was wounded by shrapnel in Vietnam, but later stated that actually, He was injured in an automobile accident in Japan while serving as a military policeman. The DOD verified that he indeed had won the Bronze Star and the Silver Star, but could find no record of him ever having been awarded a Purple Heart. He was also stationed in Germany for a time where he met his first wife, Patricia, a schoolteacher. They married and had two sons, Clayton and Todd. One of Patricia's best friends was a fellow teacher named Liz Ratliff. She and her husband George became good friends with the Petersons. When George died, Patty and Mike became even closer to Liz. In her will, she named Mike as guardian for her two daughters, Margaret and Martha. She also directed that the bulk of her entire estate go to Mike to help raise the girls. In 1985, Mike Peterson visited Liz and helped her put the children to bed. The next morning, her nanny discovered Liz lying at the foot of the stairs. She was dead. The initial autopsy said that she had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. It concluded that she died instantly, then fell down the stairs. Mike Peterson was the last person to see her alive. In 1987, Mike and Patty divorced. They all moved back to North Carolina. The two boys moved in with Patty, but Margaret and Martha, Liz Ratliff's two daughters, stayed with Mike. By this time, Mike was a published author, having written several military novels based on his time in Vietnam. He also worked for a local newspaper as a columnist and took an interest in Durham politics. 
He wrote several columns criticizing Durham police tactics and also criticizing the performance of the district attorney, James Hardin, Jr. In 1989, Mike met Kathleen Atwater, a business executive in Durham. Kathleen had grown up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She was the first woman accepted into the School of Engineering at Duke. She was a vice president at Nortel and had a net worth of $2 million. Kathleen and her daughter Caitlin moved in with Mike and his boys and Liz Ratliff's daughters. The blended family seemed happy. Mike and Kathleen married in 1997. One of Mike's books had just been published and was doing quite well, and they used the proceeds to buy a five-bedroom colonial house with a fancy winding staircase in the trendy Forest Hill section of Durham. They were known as one of Durham's power couples. In 1999, Mike decided to run for mayor. During the campaign, it came to light that some of the stories he had been telling about his time in Vietnam were not exactly true, including the fact that he had been wounded and won two Purple Hearts. He lost the election. By 2001, the couple were worried about money. Despite the royalties from his books and Kathleen's $145,000 salary, dark clouds were looming on the horizon. There had been a large layoff at Nortel in 2000, and Kathleen was worried that her job might be eliminated in the next round. In the early morning hours of December 9, 2001, Mike Peterson called 911. He said that he had just found his wife unconscious at the foot of the winding staircase. When the first responders arrived, they found a dead Kathleen Peterson lying at the foot of the stairs, her head resting on the bottom step, her body twisted on the floor. It looked like a bloodbath. There was a tremendous amount of blood on the stairs and the wall on the floor. She had been dead for two hours. Mike Peterson was in a t-shirt and shorts. He said the couple had shared some wine earlier, and then he went out on the patio to smoke a pipe in 50-degree winter weather. Kathleen had been drinking and also taken a Valium, he said. She must have tripped going up the stairs and fallen. No, he said, he hadn't heard anything. No screams, no noises as she tumbled down the stairs. The police were suspicious from the beginning. For starters, there seemed to be too much blood for it to have been caused by a simple fall down the stairs. The toxology reports indicated that Kathleen had been drinking, but her blood alcohol level was only .07, not even enough to get her arrested for a DUI. There were multiple lacerations on her head that the medical examiner deemed consistent with being struck multiple times with a blunt object, like a fireplace poker. Within a week, Mike had been arrested and charged with first-degree murder. His family stood by him. 
Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, took on the role of family spokesperson, loudly proclaiming her stepfather's innocence. She insisted that her mother and Mike loved each other and would have never hurt each other. When Mike's trial began in 2003, Caitlin was staunchly supportive of him. But as she sat in the courtroom and listened to the evidence and saw the autopsy records and the photos, her opinion changed. By the end of the trial, she had stopped sitting with her stepbrothers and stepsisters and moved to the prosecution side of the courtroom. She felt that the evidence was overwhelming that Mike Peterson had indeed murdered her mother. First of all, there was the blood. The prosecution's expert witness testified that the blood spatters around the wall and stairs was inconsistent with Peterson's claim that his wife simply fell down the stairs. The lacerations on the top of her head couldn't have been caused by a simple fall, the medical examiner said. She had to have been struck repeatedly with a heavy, blunt object. Then there was Mike's footprint on Kathleen's clothes and his handprint on the wall, as if he had stood over her as she lay dying. There were blood smears on the wall as if someone had taken a towel and tried to clean them up. Then there was the time difference and the fact that Kathleen had laid at the bottom of the stairs for two hours, not 45 minutes. As far as the motive? No one knew how precarious Mike and Kathleen's financial situation had become. The value of her Nortel stock had dropped from $2 million to 50000 They had credit card bills of $142,000 and three children in college. Kathleen was afraid of losing her job and Mike's writing career had stalled. But there was that $1.4 million life insurance policy on Kathleen's life to which Mike was the sole beneficiary. Then there was Mike's computer and cell phone. When police forensic experts examined his computer, they found thousands of pictures of young, nude, male models engaged in multiple homosexual acts and many, many hookup conversations on websites. When they examined his phone, they discovered a string of text messages with male escorts. In one of them, Mike described himself as happily married to a dynamite woman, but also very bisexual. The prosecution believed that on the day she died, Kathleen had left her computer at work, so she went upstairs to use Mike's. She found the pictures and the texts and confronted him. She was humiliated and wanted to end the marriage. Mike was not only cheating on her, he was cheating on her with men. At some point, Mike must have become enraged, and a fight ensued with him beating her with a fireplace poker and pushing her down the stairs. Then there was the testimony from friends of Liz Ratliff the old family friend in Germany. It didn't appear that she had simply suffered a hemorrhage and fallen down the stairs. There was too much blood for that. 
There were lacerations on her head. There was the fact that Mike was the last person to see her alive and that she left her entire estate to him. Sound familiar? It was enough to convince Caitlin Atwater and her aunt, Kathleen's sister, that Mike had indeed murdered Kathleen Peterson. But the prosecution's case wasn't foolproof. Yes, there was a lot of blood, but they produced their own expert who conducted an in-court demonstration showing exactly how the blood splatters could have happened. The defense also brought up the fact that after being supposedly struck multiple times with a blunt object, Kathleen's skull was not fractured, nor was her brain injured. The lacerations, while deep, certainly may have been more consistent with cuts and bruises that occurred in a fall. And yes, Mike was bisexual, but his children testified that it wasn't a secret. They said Kathleen knew that and was okay with it, that their marriage was a happy one. The jury didn't buy the defense theories and excuses. They convicted Mike of first-degree murder and sentenced him to life in prison. Mike filed several appeals, but they were all rejected. It appeared he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. In 2006, Caitlin and her aunt filed a wrongful death suit against him and obtained a judgment of $25 million. He was in prison and indigent. The house had been sold. There were no more assets, so it was unlikely that they would ever receive any money from him. But at least they had the satisfaction of knowing that he had murdered their mother and was responsible. It appeared the case was over. But then in 2009, a former neighbor of Mike's, a local attorney named Larry Pollard, announced that he may have determined the real cause of Kathleen Peterson's death. Now, Pollard did not represent Mike at the time, but he had followed the case and read all of the reports, and he just didn't think his former neighbor was capable of this kind of an act. As he combed through the record, he was struck by something that no one else seemed to focus on. As Kathleen Peterson lay dying on the floor, clutched in her hand was a tuft of her own hair, or someone's hair, and some microscopic owl feathers. The lacerations on Kathleen's head appeared to be consistent with the talons of a great horned owl that might have dug into her head. Pollard's unlikely theory is as follows. Kathleen went outside, and a great horned owl swooped down on her head. She tore at it and finally got it off. She was bleeding, and she had some of her own hair in her hand. She was in pain and disoriented started up the stairs, still hitting at her own head, and that, combined with the wine and the Valium, caused her to stumble, and she fell. Pollard tried to file motions for a new trial, but the judge rejected them, saying he didn't even represent Peterson and he had no standing in the case. He talked to Peterson's attorneys, and they were intrigued by his theory, but 
They didn't really want to present it to a court either, feeling it was just too far-fetched. Besides, something else was happening. In Raleigh, North Carolina, the state capital, the attorney general had received reports about the prosecution's blood expert witness, the one who had testified at Mike's trial. He had testified at a lot of other trials over the previous decade, and it turned out he had grossly exaggerated his own resume. While on the stand in Mike's trial, he testified that he had given evidence in 47 criminal trials up to that point. Actually, Mike's trial was only the third time he had testified. He lied about the blood spatters he saw, and in fact testified about some splatters that didn't even exist. Based on this report released by the North Carolina Attorney General, Mike's lawyer, along with dozens of other lawyers around the state where the expert had testified, petitioned for a new trial. Based on the fact that the blood evidence would likely not be admissible in any new trial, the judge granted the motion and ordered Mike released on bail in 2011. He was confined to his home and had to wear an ankle bracelet, but within three years, those restrictions had been lessened as well. A new trial was scheduled to begin on May 8, 2017. On February 7th of that year, the prosecutor held a press conference and announced that the case was over. Mike had accepted an Alford plea. An Alford plea allows a defendant to maintain his innocence, but to admit that there might be sufficient evidence to convict him if he had gone to trial. The prosecution wasn't keen on retrying the case without the blood evidence. That would simply leave a lot of circumstantial evidence. Mike really didn't want to go to trial and risk going back to prison after having been freed for six years. So, the judge accepted the plea and sentenced Mike to eight years in prison, but gave him credit for time served. Since Mike had already served 98 months, he was deemed to have completed his sentence and was released from custody. Did Mike Peterson murder his wife? Or was it an accident? Caused by a frightened owl? Some wine. And some value. Today's episode is brought to you by Landlocked KC. You guys know how much we love fashion and our hometown of Kansas City here at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. One of my favorite local clothing companies is Landlocked KC. Not only does Landlocked help all of us Kansas Cityans show off our KC pride with their Comeback City collection, but they also advocate for equality in race, religion, orientation, and gender with their equality collection. If you're all about a good comeback, whether that's about the Royals and Chiefs coming back to win the World Series and Super Bowl, or about our community coming back from the COVID shutdown and current political climate, you'll find some amazing new pieces in Landlock's Comeback City collection. I recently purchased Landlock's Coach's logo jacket, and I'm obsessed. You can see how I styled it on our social media pages. Check out the rest of Landlock's fun pieces at www.landlockedco.com. Show us what you buy in our VIP Facebook group. Oh, and go Chiefs! 
good one, Dad. I'm glad I suggested this. I am too. It's crazy. And it never ends. I guess it's over now, but. Yeah, it uh, it is. It is crazy. When I first saw the Netflix documentary uh, and they brought up the owl theory at first, I thought, well, this is just nuts. But the more you think of it, who knows? Mm-hmm. There could be an owl out there who should be in prison right now. Right. Just living free. I hope, there's a, I hope there's a bounty hunter out in the North Carolina woods. I know, right? Well, we will talk more about that theory and other stuff soon. Uh, first, we will have our Trends of the Crime section sponsored by Style a la Mode. And this is the part of the podcast where I tell you all about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime. So this fashion era is pretty nostalgic for me. Because I grew up in the early 2000s. And although I was pretty young in 2001, but I think that what I'm about to go over lasted pretty well into the mid 2000s. So 2001 was the rise of fast fashion. And um, the large retail giants of the millennium were H&M, still my fave, uh, Forever 21, and Zara. Rip Forever 21. The... Fashion at the time was a fusion of vintage styles, global and ethnic clothing, and fashion from numerous music-based subcultures. And the mid to late 1990s fashion was still popular at this time with the new 2000s trends being introduced simultaneously. That's pretty much true of any era, though. So Now, you call this fast fashion. What do mm-hmm. you mean by that? Fast fashion is... I don't know the exact definition. Um, While I tell you my definition, I'll look up the exact definition. Slow fashion is like what you see on the runway, like haute couture and uh, stuff that you just make well. Uh, Fast fashion, though, was created with a goal to get the items from the runway to the consumer as quickly as possible, which means that they were made with low quality fabrics very quickly. And the fashion seasons don't really exist anymore like they used to be fall winter spring summer and they still are with high-end fashion but fast fashion is just a constant constant influx of new inventory and that's why when you go into h&m or forever 21 it's very overwhelming clothes are spilling over because they're constantly getting new inventory here's the exact definition Fast fashion is a contemporary term used by fashion retailers for designs that flow from the catwalk quickly to capture current fashion trends. Fast fashion clothing collections are based on the most recent fashion trends presented at Fashion Week in both the spring and autumn of every year. So in 2001, this was before fast fashion was seen as awful, which is how it's seen now. (laughs) And I hate that I still indulge in it, Um, but... It's horrible for the environment. It's horrible for designers because they're getting their items ripped off and it's all around horrible. So if at all possible, let's stop shopping fast fashion. I have to keep trying. <laughs> Dad, do you indulge in fast fashion? Uh, no, I, I, just, <laughs> uh, I just go to a thrift store. Yeah, he goes to Goodwill. That, he does it right. You do it right. Good job, Dad. Yes, thrifting fast fashion clothes is fine. All right, you don't get all your clothes from Goodwill, Dad. No, I... (laughs) Quickly, I'll go over women's and men's fashion of the time. So, Y2K was going on. I was too young to really know what that means, so why don't you quickly tell us 
what Y2K was? Well, there was a fear when the calendar and the internal clocks of computers got to December 31st, 1999 at 11.59 p.m. that uh, when the next second ticked off and now we were in 2000, that there were so many computer programs out there that just used the last two numbers of the year, like, you know, 98, 99. But then when it got to zero, zero, that it would cause this massive meltdown of every computer all over the world, that power would fail, that the banking system would collapse, and uh, we would end up in a dystopian world. Who came up with that? It was one of the conspiracy theories, but mm. I had friends in the computer industry, and they were actually put on alert that oh, wow. night. And in fact, one of them um, was here at the house that night. Uh, we always used to have a New Year's Eve party. I snuck away and went down to the basement at uh, about eleven fifty-seven, and as soon as uh, as soon as the clock hit midnight, I threw the the master circuit breaker. And uh, turned off all the power Dad. in the house. And and I heard Don say, oh, expletive at that moment. Um, so You're we had mean. quite a laugh. I turned the power back on. Everything was fine. That's funny. Well, so because of what, what Y2K was, a lot of the fashion was uh, technologically inspired, metallics, wireframe, rectangle glasses, mesh tops. Uh, dark, sexy, because it's really sexy to end the world. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was the Y2K fashion. Uh, jeans were also um, really popular at this time, mainly because 9-11 caused a rise in denim and more conservative looks all of a sudden. Why do you think that is? 9-11 made us dress more conservatively. I I hadn't really thought about that. Just, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Maybe because everyone was a little nervous. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Interesting. The great source of Wikipedia did not tell me why this was, but it told me that it was. Um, so the there was also a casual chic look, and that was inspired by Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. And there was also the first round of the Oops, I wrote 1080s, but I meant 1980s revival. Uh, denim miniskirts, distressed jeans, polo shirts with popped collars, trucker hats, sketchers, newsboy caps, ponchos, and jelly bracelets. And the 80s sure do seem to come back every decade, huh? They do. They yeah. do. Lastly, with women's fashion, sex in the city impacted how women cared about fashion and how they shopped. And the, because the show depicted women as empowered consumers, each with their own independent styles that shopped based on what they wanted, not on what they were told to wear. So it was pretty empowering for fashionistas at the time. All right, men's fashion. We also had the Y2K inspo there with tracksuits. Uh, and this mainly applied to when they went out, not like everyday styles. So black and silver, leather coats and pants, Puffy vests and jackets. Look at me. I'm wearing a puffy vest. There you are. I'm a man in the early 2000s. There you are. <laughs> you have a leather jacket, Dad. I do. Yeah. I do. I have two. Do you wear them when you go out? Probably sometimes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just usually grab what's uh, on the 
on the outside uh, rack of the coat tree so I don't have to <laughs> dig around underneath. So smart, uh, smart. If it's there, I'll put it on. If not, it'll be something else. Yep. Well, men's leisure wear, again, fashion became more conservative after 9-11. Uh, there was distressed denim. The uh, frosted tips highlights, Aaron Carter, anyone? Uh, and Nick Carter, or wait, one of them in, in NSYNC. Uh, track suits, polo shirts, cargo pants, ugh, cargo pants, aviator sunglasses, trucker hats, and flip flops. Let's talk polo shirts for a minute. All right. Should those be worn untucked or tucked? Is there a correct answer or are you asking my opinion? I'm asking your opinion. I mean, I think it depends on what you're wearing them with. What What's the whole outfit? Just a, a pair of, I don't know, maybe khakis or slacks as opposed to jeans. Tuck, I would tuck it in. Would you? Yeah. Okay. Now, for the girls in 2001, when they wore a polo with a miniskirt, do not tuck that in. Mm-hmm. But for guys, yes. Okay. With a belt. You can't just tuck it in with no belt. Okay. Yes. Well, that's all I got for fashion. Anything to add? I uh, I don't think so. All right, Dad. Time to go over the owl and the staircase. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the cocktail you chose. Well, I chose the Sazerac. I wanted a good Southern cocktail since this is down in North Carolina. And uh, the Sazerac is uh, home is in New Orleans, so a little bit far away from North Carolina, but... Uh, it's still a good Southern cocktail. So the Sazerac, is, uh, it's a rye-based cocktail, so we'll have a good rye whiskey. And uh, also some uh, some absinthe and Penrose bitters, mm. uh, Peshad bitters. So it's going to give it that nice spicy taste. The lemon is going to add some tartness. And then the absinthe will give it almost a, a little bit of a licorice hint as well. So hmm. a bit like an old-fashioned, but with some really unique flavors. So we're going to do the Sazerac uh, for this cocktail. It also sounds like it's fancy enough for Mike Peterson to drink. So. I'm With sure his it pipe. is. With his pipe, yes. <laughs> and his novels, yes. All right. So first, let's talk about the fall itself. Mm-hmm. Kathleen was not drunk. And one Valium, I feel like, is not going to make you, like, fall down the stairs and bleed out, you know? Mm-hmm. And she only had a 0.07 blood alcohol content, which, like you said, is wouldn't even get you arrested. Definitely tipsy, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? But I call bull crap that she just was so like out of her mind that she fell down the stairs and hit her head. And they were saying that she was slipping on the blood, and that's why she had blood on the bottom of her feet. She was like trying to help herself get up, but she was so like under the influence that she couldn't even get up. One other interesting thing about the about the whole question of how much she'd been drinking, um, when the police arrived, they they eventually made their way into the kitchen, and they found uh, a bottle of wine. I think it may have been in a in a hat, you know. I think it was chilled, maybe, mm. uh, and two wine glasses next to it, but neither wine glass had been uh, used, and her fingerprints were not on any glass. So some mm. people have thought maybe it was someone in the house. Uh, perhaps her husband, who had uh, set out the wine glasses to kind of bolster his story that they had been drinking. How would she have any blood alcohol content if she hadn't drank? Yeah. So. Oh. I don't know. I, I, you know, some people thought, well, he just put them out to try to 
add credence to the story, but he I forgot see. to actually pour any wine in them. But she she had she'd had a probably one or two glasses of wine, not not enough that she said to make her falling down drunk. Right. It was funny. I was listening to another podcast about this just to refresh my brain because I hadn't watched The Staircase in a while and I didn't have time to watch 22 episodes uh, in a week. So um, I saw or someone said that I'd say 0.07 is a healthy four glasses of wine. (laughs) I was like, I would be dead if I had four glasses. (laughs) I just thought that was funny. Yeah, I would say more like one, one and a half. Right. Not four. Well, depending on your body weight and size, but I think I for her. I know just for me, by my if I drink three glasses of wine, I'm I'm feeling pretty good and probably over a point oh eight. Yeah, I think oh two. I think two glasses of wine would put put a lot of people right about at the limit. Yeah, she was thin too. So Mm -hmm. also, I don't believe that he wouldn't have heard. Somebody falling down the stairs. And he was like, I didn't hear anything. I was out by the pool. And then when I went in 45 minutes later, she was on the floor, blah, blah, blah. Like, and in the documentary, they show how far away the pool is from the house. But if you fall down the stairs, you make a noise like you scream a little, especially if it's going to hurt so bad that you're bleeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the and and in fact, the whole forty-five minute thing is a little weird since right. the medical examiner said she'd probably been there for two hours. So even if even if it's true that he was out there and didn't hear her, well, we still have an hour and fifteen minutes that uh-huh. we're unaccounted for. So that yeah, that's a little uh, that's a little sketchy right there. Yep, I agree. Well, speaking of him finding her, I have the nine one one call. You have not heard this, correct? I have not. I have. Here we go. thoughts what are your thoughts well after you told me that you had it and didn't want me to listen to it until right now Mm -hmm. i was i was expecting something maybe a bit more calm than that Mm -hmm. but i i don't know if i would have been doing anything differently if if i was trying to get an ambulance here the and your mother fell down the stairs i I don't know if I could guess how many stairs are on our staircase. I'd just be more concerned that she fell down the stairs. I need you to get here. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't. I was ex- I was expecting to be blown away by something, but <laughs> I'm not. Now, why don't you tell me what you find wrong with it, you suspicious little minx? Well, because so I like to watch YouTube videos about um, body language and the way people speak. When they're lying or guilty, um, I just think it's fascinating because 
the thought is that he's yelling and yelling and he wants to get off the phone and he doesn't want to answer questions because he he's lying. So he doesn't want to answer all these questions. And um, I feel like he wasn't prepared to answer how many stares or even guess because he was like, huh, what, what, what? Like, like you said, you'd guess. Or did you say that? I don't know. I feel like if you were telling the truth, you would guess and be like, I don't know. Like he said, eventually. But at first he was like, what, what? And the thought is that he wasn't near the body when she asked and wasn't even near the stairs. So he couldn't answer that. And when most people would be like sitting next to the body and be like, not just walking around the house. If your wife is looking like she's dead on the floor. And his foot tracks show that he had been walking around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with with most of that. I just don't find anything out of ordinary about the phone call. I mean, if if my wife were lying there, I'd probably be kind of in the same state. I mean, hurry up, just get here, just get here. How many how many stairs? I don't know, just get here. That's probably what I'd do. But don't you think that you'd try and listen to if they're trying to help you in the meantime? I don't know. I guess I don't see how they're trying to help with how many stairs did she fall down. But like, I feel like when you call 911, they're like, okay, someone's on their way, but you need to answer some questions for me or give CPR. Here's how you give CPR if you don't know how. I know he felt like strangely, like immediately like, ah, ah, ah. I don't know. Everyone's different. Well, I guess we're in a Ron Burgundy situation here. Ron Burgundy? Yes. From the Anchorman? Yeah. I know who he is. Agree to disagree. I mean, disagree. Okay. <laughs> I'm right, but whatever. Um, That leads me to Michael's ingenuity. Okay. I don't believe a word he says. Okay. I don't like him at all. He's always talking about himself. Um... I would never do anything to hurt her. I'm not guilty. I know I didn't do it. I, I, I. I'm sorry. Isn't your wife dead? Do you miss her? Are you sad? What do you have to say that? Oh, I think you're right. I think he he was trying to, to minimize things and was constantly trying to protect himself mm-hmm. and to make excuses for himself. Um so, yeah, I don't think we have a, a lot of evidence where he said anything like, my poor wife, what am I going to do? I miss her so much. Why wasn't why wasn't I inside? Why did I have to go right. out and smoke that pipe? If only I would have been there, I could have stopped it. I mean, th- those are things you might expect to hear rather than just constantly, it's not my fault. I didn't mean to hurt her. Uh, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think he clearly this was a, this is a narcissist. For whom he believes the universe revolves around himself. Mm-hmm. A more modern case of a husband who d- made this exact same mistake was the Chris and Shanann Watts case that hopefully we'll cover someday. But yeah, he did the same thing. Was like, I didn't do it. I I don't know where they are. I don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he made the mistake of saying like, I don't know. He basically, they were supposed to just be missing. And he said like, they were Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Like he knew they were dead. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. <sighs> Just 
narcissistic. And when he said, when Michael Peterson said, I would never do anything to hurt her. A lot of guilty people say hurt instead of kill Mm -hmm. because they want to make themselves feel better Mm -hmm. and less guilty. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't, it just minimizes what they really did. Mm -hmm. Whereas like if someone were accusing me of killing someone and I didn't kill them, I was I didn't kill them Mm -hmm. because I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Now, another thing this happened after the 911 call that I hadn't heard before that when the police arrived and, of course, were questioning him, I read on on one of the one of the websites that uh, at some point as the police were downstairs examining the body and taking up evidence and they had questioned him that he went back up to his office and was working on his computer. Hmm. Which leads some people to believe that maybe he was up there trying to delete certain photographs, but Mm -hmm. when there are thousands of them, you probably didn't have time to do that. So, again, his whole demeanor around this thing, I think, was uh, was a little very suspicious. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let's talk about that motive that she had... That Kathleen had used the computer, mm-hmm. and she never used that computer. Mm-hmm. Like she even had to ask him what the password is was to get into the email because, like, mm-hmm. she just never used it. So she had apparently been on Mike's computer two hours before her death. Um, yeah, she never used it, and also apparently he had printouts of a conversation he had in a drawer. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had printouts of a conversation he had with a male escort about the kind of sex that they were going to have, when he wanted the escort to come over, etc. Um, and this escort testified in court mm-hmm. and basically was like, you would be shocked at how many men, powerful men, you know, do this type of thing. Like, it's normal. Mm-hmm. That's basically what he said. Mm-hmm. It's normal. Because um, they were like, can you believe? He's like, it's, they all, everyone does it. Like, basically, is what he was mm-hmm. saying. So, um, yeah, and like the family said, I'm sure Kathleen knew he was bisexual, but I also think it's a possibility that she didn't know that he was hiring escorts. Mm-hmm. And on top of the fact that he, I don't know, like him cheating on her, him cheating on her with another man, like that could all just build up and like make any mm-hmm. woman feel betrayed or upset and also she and her first husband divorced due to infidelity Mm -hmm. yeah i don't i i see that too and um i i i know how a a certain woman would react if she got on my computer and found stuff like that and it would it would not be pleasant (laughs) you know i i guess the one thing i think is a little bit strange here she said, what's your password or can I use your computer? And he just gives her the password. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm trying to hide something, if I would do that. But, right. But regardless, I, I'm sure when she saw all that stuff and, and especially the the printout with the time of the appointment and what they wanted to do. Yeah, that, that was probably pretty devastating to her. Is But there's not proof that she did see it. Right? No. Right, so no. we don't even know right. if she saw it. No, this is just a theory. Yeah. I mean, because the, the prosecution had to come up with a motive. Yeah. And there were two mm-hmm. that they presented. One was this. She just discovered the affair. She was very upset. She confronted him. 
he got upset and a fight ensued. Mm -hmm. The other theory, of course, is the financial theory. Which I feel is the most likely of the two. What Mm -hmm. do you think? Yeah, I do too. I do too. With how, I mean, the astronomical amount of debt they were in, that's just... Oh, gives me anxiety. Right. And, and uh, you know, she had lost a lot of money. Her stock right. had, had dipped and she was worth $2 million, But at the time of her death, she was probably only worth about 50000 She had the salary. But I don't know if they had a mortgage on that house or if they paid cash when he sold his book. But still, three kids in college. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to assume it, it was not community college. Right. They were, they were strapped. And mm-hmm. they were probably on the verge of of financial collapse or bankruptcy mm-hmm. and uh peterson saw this as a way out yep and and going back to the if it were the other motive if it were him uh if it were her finding this information out and confronting him you know i think he could have probably copped a plea to manslaughter yeah we got in a fight she saw that we were very upset i accidentally pushed her down the stairs um but you know he denied any he denied any physical contact at all, and so that's what leads me to believe it was probably not that it was probably more planned. Yeah, you don't get seven lacerations on your head by being pushed down the stairs. No, unless you have spikes sticking out of your stairs, right? Which they didn't, I assume. But what do you think of the argument that the defense presented? Well, if he hit her that many times with a blunt object, why didn't it fracture her skull? Why didn't? Why wasn't there uh, any indication of brain swelling or brain damage? Well, if it was a blow poke, could have been like a like a hard scrape to yeah. make the blood come out. Right. But that doesn't explain the splatter. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't explain because they said she died from blunt trauma. Right. But how do you have blunt trauma if there's if there's no skull fracture, if there are no brain injuries? That's an owl. That's a question. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's a question I have about, uh, you know, how this how this thing went down. Yeah. Uh, seems like if he was going to if he was going to hit her with something and kill her, there would have been a lot more damage than than some deep cuts. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've never hit someone with a blow poke, so I don't know what happens. I don't either. Now, she did have a, a crushed, uh, I think, windpipe, mm. which would lead some to believe maybe she was choked. Oh, I have something about that. Where is it? Sorry, continue. I'll find it. Though the, the defense argument to that was, well, no, when she fell, it caused whiplash, which... There, there's evidence that you know, in a in like a car accident with severe whiplash, you might it might cause that type of injury as well. It doesn't have mm. to be direct pressure, but it could be. Could be. So could be. yeah, it was also weird. There were no injuries to her knees or legs because mm-hmm. she fell down the stairs, mm-hmm. which kind of makes me think maybe she was attacked like on the landing or something, yeah. and then he like moved her body. I don't know. Like maybe she didn't really fall. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think too. Uh, oh, we'll talk about that, that staging in a minute, we think. So, she had a damaged thyroid cartilage, and it was hemorrhaging, and that is indicative of being strangled while alive. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that could also explain his footprint on her clothes, and the blood splatter, like a drop of her blood was found on like the crotch area of his pants. Uh-huh. So if he was standing over her, and he didn't see that to clean it off. Uh-huh. 
though it was still there. Right. And I think he definitely could have strangled her. For yeah. Sure. I think so, too. Yeah. I think so, too. Well, let's get into Elizabeth really quick. Probably not really quick, but Elizabeth Ratliff, mm-hmm. his adopted daughter's biological mother. Uh, so she was found dead in the same way. Mm-hmm. And who was the last to see her alive also? It would have been Michael. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, crazy. So the official ruling at the time of Elizabeth's death was natural causes because of the cerebral hemorrhage, like you said. And that caused her to fall and hit her head. However, why does she have seven lacerations on the back of her head? Mm-hmm. And uh, who knows... I mean, it's also weird that they looked pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth and Kathleen looked similar. Uh, some say that maybe he didn't kill Elizabeth, that she actually did fall, but then did kill Kathleen and set up her body to look like Elizabeth's because he knew that that was ruled an accident. So he was like, well, if I make Kathleen look like that, they'll think it's an accident. Yeah, that it was kind of a copycat mm-hmm. that, that he got the idea from the way Liz died. Right. Now, they were... The the families were close uh, when they lived in Germany. Mm-hmm. Was Did you run across any evidence that maybe Mike and Liz had something going on on the side? Um, I don't know if I found any official evidence on that, but I do know that one of her daughters looks a lot like Mike, mm-hmm. um, which has been mentioned in... Something I've read. Of course, there's no, there's no, nothing to back that up, but they do look very similar. And she's supposedly one of his adopted daughters. No blood relation at all. Um, yeah, I always thought the, the whole thing was weird is, you know, they, her husband dies and then she makes Mike the guardian of her children and leaves the estate to him. Mm-hmm. So he has money to care for him. Um the night she died, I guess Mike and, and uh, Patty, his first wife, were there to uh, have dinner. But then Mike went back and helped put the girls to bed. So, I don't know. That just it, it struck me when I read that. This is a, a weird type of relationship. So, you got to wonder mm-hmm. if there's something going on there. It, uh, yeah, it's all weird to me. Look at these two, Dad. The girl on the end, and there's Michael. Don't they look alive? Very similar. Yeah, very Their similar faces. face structure. Yeah. 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 Um, and the whole dynamic to me is weird because the girls weren't, I mean, they were girls, but they weren't like babies when right. they became adopted by Michael. And then, so, but they're so, it's so easy to call Michael dad, Kathleen mom, mm-hmm. when they were, what, how old were they when their mom died? Like, I feel like they were old enough to not call another woman mom because they knew their mom. Right. And they had never met Kathleen before. I mean, they yeah. knew Patty, the first wife. Yeah. This, this, this whole relationship yeah. is, is just a little creepy to me. I remember when I watched it, I thought that they were also his daughters because I thought they were his daughters, but... um Kathleen's stepdaughters. And then mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's not so weird. Them calling her mom because he's her, he's their dad. Mm-hmm. But then when I found out neither one of them were the biological parents, I was like, and they knew their biological parents. Mm-hmm. Weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I don't know. I've never seen anything like that before. It was very interesting. And not here to judge, just, it's just, you know, struck, we're not the only ones that struck as odd, but yeah, who knows? Well, they did, uh, they did exhume Liz's body later and they changed it. They changed her, her cause of death from accidental to homicide, but no one's ever been charged. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike was never charged. Um, But testimony was allowed at trial Mm -hmm. uh, about this coincidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did see an interview with the original trial judge, and he feels that he made a mistake by allowing that. Mm. He thought that might have prejudiced the jury because, I mean, you and I are talking about how strange this looked. So the the original trial judge thought, you know, I probably shouldn't have let that in. Right. Because you're supposed to focus on the one at hand, right? Right. Right. Um, yeah, that was an interesting thing because the daughters allowed their mother's body to be exhumed in hopes that it would, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Clear Mike, when in fact it just made him look worse because Mm -hmm. it was changed to homicide, although he wasn't charged. I mean, that's, that's obviously going to be people's first assumption who know the case, so... But they're still on his side. The only one who changed sides was uh, Caitlin. Right. So to this day, the other kids, he's innocent. So this owl theory we've mentioned and you discussed in the story. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I believe the owl theory. I, I don't either. I mean, it's you, you got to wonder how, how clumps of her hair. Mm-hmm. With some microscopic owl feathers ended up in her hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just a lot of weird coincidences there. Uh-huh. But I did read that owl wounds look more like puncture wounds because uh-huh. they go in, the talons go in. Right. These looked like long, deep scratches. Well, I can just to play devil's advocate. If uh-huh. the if the talons are in and she's trying to pull it True. off and she's yanking it back and forth trying to get it off, I could see, I could see it causing injuries like that. Um, but I also wonder with if she was doing that and then had seven lacerations, don't you think more of her hair would have fallen out? You would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but there's an owl that hangs out really close to my house. And every time I see it, I get scared because of this. Because <laughs> this could have happened. I obviously think that Michael did it. Um, yeah, but I think that this theory is interesting. Yeah, I do too. And it would have been interesting if they had actually had a second trial. Because uh-huh. his attorney said if we had done that, she certainly would have presented this as a defense. And we would have had expert testimony from probably... Orinthologists. I mean, it would have been dueling testimony. The the state would have hired people who said this is crazy. It never happened, and they would have hired experts that say yes, this is certainly plausible. You know, we could have seen we could have seen evidence about what a owl attack mm-hmm. actually looks like. But yeah, you know, at this point, we're we we've got a theory that's never been tested and never had evidence presented on. So it would have been interesting to see if there had been a second trial, what this would have looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It would have been a risk, I think. Mm-hmm. I could see jurors just hearing this and just rolling their eyes and right. saying this is crazy. But I could also see some jurors saying, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
how did how did you get those lacerations on the head and why if it was a blunt object why wasn't her skull broken and mm-hmm. it would have been interesting to see yeah i think for anyone right away it sounds ridiculous but then when they start explaining things you're like hmm mm-hmm. yeah and it's not every day that you hear of an owl attack so it's not common knowledge of what an owl can do to you or that an owl can kill you I know when I when I watched the documentary and they brought this up, I thought, oh, this is crazy. But then mm-hmm. as I listened to it, I thought, well, maybe not. Yep. Uh, I know I know your sister got, got attacked by a goose one time. <laughs> so maybe an owl. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> she thinks she got attacked by a goose. Right. She provoked the goose. So. <laughs> okay. So the official verdict was that Michael Peterson was found guilty of the murder of Kathleen Peterson and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But he lucked out with Mr. Dwayne, what's his name? Deaver, I believe. Dwayne Deaver uh, being shady and uh, was released in 2011 and granted a new trial Mm -hmm. due to the unreliable evidence that basically convicted him. Or mm-hmm. was a big part, right? Right. Yeah. Without the blood, there really wouldn't have been any direct evidence. Mm-hmm. It would have been all circumstantial. So we would have been talking about the computer. We'd have been talking about the money. Mm-hmm. But there wouldn't have been any direct evidence about her injuries, really. Right. Just an autopsy that her skull hadn't been broken. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it uh, it was pretty key. Yeah. And, you know, this, this clown, Mr. Deaver... Um, Clearly cost a conviction here and probably sent some truly innocent people to jail mm-hmm. during his during his career. But like we were talking about before we started, I'm so happy that he was caught because you're right. I'm sure he did send a lot of innocent people to jail. But I think in this case, a guilty person went to prison and now is free mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and says he didn't do anything when two women he was the last to see died in the same way and they never get to like live their lives they never get to share their side of the story about any of this that we're talking about Mm -hmm. because they're dead yep yep um it's sad did you want me to talk a little bit about what an alford plea is talk more about that please well an alford plea allows someone a, a defendant to say i didn't do it I'm innocent, but I don't want to risk going for trial because there's enough evidence that you might be able to convict me. So, you know, it allows someone to never admit guilt, but also to say, I I don't want to risk going to trial. And I think in this case, the state really didn't want to have a second trial because they knew they couldn't use the blood evidence. And the judge had already kind of gone on record as saying, you know, I probably shouldn't have let that stuff about Liz in. And the judge also said, and I really don't know if I should have let all those pictures on his computer in. I don't know if they were relevant. So I think the state thought, man, we got to go back to trial. What do we have? Mm -hmm. Particularly if the next judge doesn't allow us to use the computer and doesn't allow us to talk about Liz and we can't use the blood. Mm Mm-hmm. We can probably go to trial, but there's a good chance he'll walk. And I think Peterson had already been in jail eight years, and I don't think he wanted to risk going back. So it was just a a compromise, really, on their parts. The state can say, yeah, 
we got the conviction, mm-hmm. uh, and Peterson can say, well, uh, but I really didn't do it. Right. So, How often is this used? Because I had never heard of it until this happened. The plea, I mean. It's, it's not rare. Mm-hmm. Back in my career, I'd done it a couple times for clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it allows both the prosecution and the defense to say, kind of, yeah, we won. And and no one really did win, particularly for Kathleen, Kathleen Peterson. And maybe uh, Liz. <laughs> you know, it's interesting as we're doing uh, all these podcasts. Frequently, I, I read about the survivor, the survivor of the murder victim. And one of their big complaints about even what we're doing mm-hmm. is, well, it just seems to glorify right. the killer. It's always about them. And, and the victim is known as the victim. So, again... Uh, let's always remember mm-hmm. that we had a very successful, by all accounts, a very vivacious woman whose whose life ended. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, it's it's not about her narcissistic husband who may have gotten away with murder, but a daughter lost her mother, sisters lost their sister, and a lot of people in, in Durham and uh, around that area Lost a very good friend. So mm-hmm. let's always keep uh, keep these folks in mind. Yep. Well, that's a good place to end it. Thank you, Dad. You're most welcome. Thank you. Okay, Dad. What are we doing next week? We are going uh, back to our roots in Kansas, staying uh, in the 1980s. And we're going to be talking about a rather notorious uh, Kansas murder involving a Lutheran minister and his secretary, who uh, were convicted of killing their spouses so they could uh, continue to uh, do what they do. Yep. Sounds pretty good. All right. Well, we will see you guys next week, and thanks for listening. We will talk to you later. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. <laughs>